um, then you can follow along. Matthew 25, 14 to 30. Thank you. Um, Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the man with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not gathered seed. Well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold. So he took the bag of gold from him and gave it to the man who had 10 bags. For whoever has been given more, they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the beauty of this world that we live in and for the beauty of Southern California and where we are. And um, as we unpack this and think more, more about generosity, uh, may we not feel in any way condemned. May we not feel in any way pressured, but may we explore and understand and hear something more of what you feel and know and love us and call us to be. In Jesus' name, um, amen. So in this story, there are four main characters, uh, three of which are servants who work on behalf of a rich, powerful, influential businessman. And we find out in uh, verse 14 that this rich, influential businessman is going on a long journey. And because the businessman works and lives in a climate where there is no email or Zoom or fax or anything else, how amazing is that? that he does what would have been very culturally normal at the time, which is to divide up all of his business dealings, all of his business empire, all of his things that he's trying to achieve. He divides it into wealth that he gives to his different servants, different amounts to different servants. And he says, I'm, I'm going now, but one day I will return. And we see in verse 19 that a very long time later, the wealthy businessman returns and he asks to his three servants, 
What did you do with the things that I gave you to extend my work, my business dealings, my kingdom or empire? And the first servant comes in. He says, well, you gave me five bags of money and I put them to work in the kingdom. I put them to work in your business. I put them to work doing the things that you were already doing. And look, I started with five and I've given five more. And look, here are 10 bags now. And the master is so happy. And the second guy comes in and he comes and he says, well, you gave me two bags. Notice a totally different amount. You gave, I started with two bags and I put it to work. And look, now there's two more and now I've got four bags. And then we see the response of the master. Well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But then in comes the, the third servant who had one bag. He says, well, what did you do with the one bag that I gave you? And the servant says, well, here's the thing. I was scared. I was fearful. I was anxious and I was worried and I didn't want to lose the very one bag that you gave me. So what I did is I went out to a field and I dug a massive hole in the ground and I put my bag in the massive hole in the ground and I covered it over so that I wouldn't lose it and I just dug it up and it's a bit dusty, but here it is. I've got the one bag back. And the master goes mad. Like almost seemingly strangely strong response from verse 26 onwards. Well, like what are you doing? Wicked, lazy servant. I asked you to invest. I asked you to continue the very things that I were doing, and yet all you did was shove it in the ground and do absolutely nothing with it. You could have at least taken it to the bank and earned some interest. I'm going to assume interest rates were a bit higher than they are today. But you could have done something, and yet your fear, your concern, your laziness choose you to do absolutely nothing. And we see this really, really strong response. Now, sometimes in Jesus' passages and parables, it's really hard to figure out exactly who everybody is that he's talking about. But in this parable, it's very easy. Who is the ruler, the businessman, someone who owns all this stuff, who loans it to his guys, one day promises to come back to find out what they had done, and based on what they say they have done, there will be some sort of long-term reward. Like, who could we be possibly talking about in church this morning? The answer is always Jesus, congratulations, or Kirby, but it's definitely Jesus in this instance, right? So if Jesus is the rich ruler, then who are the servants? Who could we be talking about? Us, absolutely. And so what we are talking about this morning is this very simple but incredibly profound kingdom reality, which is this. We, you and me, are kingdom investors, that Jesus has entrusted things to us, to you and to me, to time, talent, treasure, opportunity, relationships, you could carry on, things that he has put into our hands and he has put into our lives. So just think for a minute. You can close your eyes if this helps, but what is the most valuable thing that you have? Don't be too spiritual about it. Just go with, go with something you have, like stuff in your life, a, an object money, um, a skill that you have. That thing that you've got in your mind and everything else was given to you by God. It's his. 2 Chronicles 29, 11, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for 
everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Now, we can go, hold on a minute, that just sounds a little bit unfair. It's like, I, did really, I worked really hard to get that thing or to get that opportunity to have that skill that I've just been thinking about. Deuteronomy 8. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. That Jesus has given to each one of us things that we are instructed and given the opportunity to use on earth on behalf of Jesus, who is the ruler, so that one day he will come back and ask us, what did you do with those very things? So think, that, think of that thing again in your mind. Just hold it in your mind and go with this phrase with me. My, dot, 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 was loaned to me by Jesus so that I could invest it for his kingdom gain. My, I don't know, my ability, my skill, the things that are in my bank account, my car, my iPhone, whatever it is, were given to me for a specific purpose, which is that I might invest it so that one day there might be some kingdom results for the things he gave me. So what does it mean? Um, what does it mean to have kingdom gain? Well, what we know in this parable is that the instruction from the master to the servants was, would you continue the very things that I was doing when I was here amongst you? And so we can say the same thing. Well, what did Jesus do when he was amongst us? What did he instruct his disciples to do? Well, number one, make disciples. Proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Heal the sick. Proclaim the good news to the captives. Bind up the poor and the broken and the lonely and the lost. Care for the world around. There's so many things that we can say. These are the things that Jesus did. And if Jesus did them and instructed us to do them, then these are the things that we can do to bring kingdom gain on the earth. And one day, when he comes back, when Jesus returns, or when we find ourselves in front of him, he will say to us, Ben, what did you do? What did you do with the time? What did you do with the treasure? What did you do with the talents? What did you do with the opportunities? And this is the thing that blows my mind, and I can't fully understand it, but it is just crazy and a bit controversial, which is that something to do with how I answer that question and the results that I am able to produce will have something to bear on my eternal future. Now, we find that a bit hard in our kind of you know, world of churches because we say, well, hold on, don't you go to heaven because of faith alone? And of course, the answer is yes. We don't get to heaven through anything other than God's grace and our response to it. But if this thing that we're in at the moment, this 10, 20, 100 years that we get on this planet in this moment, if this is like the pregame show, if this is like the buildup, if this is the appetizer to the main course, then one day we will be in the presence of the king for all eternity, and how we experience all eternity will in some way be linked to how we did this thing called life on earth. Jesus calls it treasures in heaven. And you can go and explore it and think about it some more in your own time if you want to do it. But I actually think it's really exciting. You can see I'm smiling this morning. It's really exciting because the idea that you and I investors really excites me. I feel like in another life, I would have been like a bond trader or something like that. I just love, I love the idea of like seeing things grow into the future. I'm the guy who has been like watching Bitcoin since 2006 and then like 15 years too late, I bought a few tiny dollars worth. But I love the idea that things grow, but, but you know, sometimes when we think about investment, we think, what can I do today that tomorrow will make my life better? 
But if you talk to a great financial advisor, and we have a few in the room, they will tell you that that's not the way to think about investment. If you want to think about investment, you need to think about what am I going to do today that's going to make impact in 10 years, or 20 years, or 30 years. Well, if you talk to Jesus, what he actually says is this, you need to do something today that's going to make a difference around you and in you, not for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, but for all eternity. What you do today matters with your life. I think that's exciting, right? I mean, it's a bit scary too, but it means, look, I got a dollar. I had to go and borrow it from my wife because I didn't have a dollar, but I borrowed it. And I said, honey, what have you got in your wallet? One dollar. Okay. It means if you've got one of these on you or in your bank account, I guess you're going to spend one of these today, whether you spend it on your lunch or how to travel home or what you watch later this evening or on something online. Every time you do something one on one of these, you're a kingdom investor. Every time you spend an hour of your day, you are making choices that impact people around you, which means you're a kingdom investor. Every time you go online, you're a kingdom investor. Every time you talk to another human being, you are a kingdom investor because God has put things in your hand that are for a particular purpose so that you might invest them to see God's kingdom come. So screw cryptocurrency. It's not the best thing. Kingdom investing, right? That is the best thing. And it's so upside down from what we're told. So often, like we're told, it's all about you. It's about your goals, your objectives, what you want to get out of life, maximizing your return on your life investment. And yet Jesus says, no, there's something better. I'm always really challenged in this story that there isn't a fourth servant. What did you do with what I gave you? Oh, man, I had such a great time. Like, I partied, I traveled the world, I did the most amazing things, there's nothing left at all. I mean, it's all completely gone, but I had an awesome time. I just imagine what Jesus might have had to say to that. We are invited to join in God's story of bringing transformation to the world around us for kingdom gain. This, um, this last week, we took the staff team down to Vineyard Anaheim. If you know anything about that church, it's where John Wimber did all his ministry in the 80s and the 90s. And today that church is going through a complete, complete revival and lives are being transformed. But the particular way that they are doing it is not by just having the most incredible worship times and prayer times. The way that they're doing it is that they have committed to make their church a church for the city of Anaheim. And they have transformed a lot of their building into like a Trader Joe's where people who can't afford to buy food can come and just take food. They do it by going out onto the streets, and Matt went out with them onto the streets this week, and they prayed for people in Walmart to be healed of diseases and come to know Jesus. And that happened this week. Now, that's what they do because they realize that their life is more than their life for themselves. Their life is the life for the city to see changed lives. And I was so excited. I was so inspired. I've just like, been writing notes all week. What does it mean for us? as Vintage Pasadena, to be a church for the city, a church for our communities, a church that would bring creative kingdom transformation into people's lives for the sake of what Jesus would want to see happen. So think again. What's that valuable thing that you thought of a minute ago? I don't know, the relationship, the car, the treasure, the money, whatever it was. What does it mean to see that as a gift, to be invested for transformation in the kingdom for eternity? What does it mean to see it as a gift to bring transformation? Now, if what I've said is true, then I want to also suggest something else to you this morning, which is that for some of us, 
everything we have ever thought and been taught about financial giving might be wrong. It might be wrong. Because sometimes, just occasionally, people will come and talk to me, and they're like, hey, pastor, like, I want to know, if I'm a member of your church, what should I do? And the kind of question that they're really asking, or they never use this words, are things like this. What is the minimum amount of my money or my time, my energy, my resources, that I should give away to God and all the church in order to please God and all the church? And the sort of idea is that, well, everything's mine, but God has a standard that he wants us, right? Don't murder, check. Sunday, at least. Don't murder, check, right? Take a rest, Sunday, check. Don't lie, check. Okay, we check the boxes. What's the one? Pre-tax, post-tax. What if I'm in debt? What if I'm a student? What am I supposed to check on the giving line so that one day God will go, great, check. But the problem is, of course, that is so completely upside down from what, what God teaches us about giving. Because if everything is God and everything is on loan to you and to me, if everything is a tool that we have been given, then surely the answer is not, what is the minimum amount that I need to give away? Surely, this is the question, what do I need to keep hold of for myself so that everything else can be used in the kingdom? Not what is the minimum amount of this that I can do over here to give a little bit away so that everything else is mine so I can do whatever I feel I want to and need to? But actually, what is the amount, the things that I actually need to keep hold of just to do some things with which God has specifically called me to do so that other things, all the rest, can be invested in the kingdom? I'm always deeply challenged by a story of a guy called Rick Warren, Many of you will know Rick Warren. He's the pastor of Saddleback Church in Orange County. And he wrote this book called The Purpose Driven Life. And he said, just be honest with you, when you write a book like The Purpose Driven Life, which was the number one bestseller in the U.S., it's still one of the bestsellers in the U.S., um, if you write a book like that, you become instantly wealthy, huge amounts of money. But he says, I am sure that the only reason God ever allowed that book to come into existence but by that point in my life, I had committed to give away 95% of everything that I had received. He was a person committed to give, to see everything as God, as to make sure that he held on to the smallest amount possible so that he could give the maximum amount away. And what I think is, I think for some of us, there will be these moments when actually what we need to hold on to is actually quite large. If there are specific moments, if there are specific things which God has said, I need, to, need you to invest in this bit of your family or this instance or do this thing or go to this place, there will be those moments when we're like, well, actually, I have to hold on to quite a lot to do that. But there will be a lot of other moments when in reality, we don't need to hold on to that much at all because God's invitation is just give and see what I can do. And I think what's also so wonderful about this is it's never about the individual amounts of money. Right? You can hear Rick Warren's story and go, well, that's fine for Rick Warren, like number one bestseller in the world. Yeah, fine. If I was a millionaire, I'd be kind of generous too. But, but I'm the guy with the one bag or the one donkey from last week, two donkeys or the two coins or the boy with the two loaves and two fishes and the five loaves. That, like that, I'm that person. Well, as we see in this parable, it's never about what you start with. It's never about whether you've got a one or two or a five. It's what you do with the one or the two or the five in return. That's what it's about. So 
If that's true, then why do churches, why do we as vintage, why do we ever use this funny word tithing? Why is that relevant to anything if it's all just God's anyway and we're supposed to use all of it for the kingdom? Well, let me maybe throw it to you like this. Um, This year, Laura and I will have been married for 15 years. Praise the Lord for her perseverance and kindness and grace and blindness and, you know, <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, she, she's amazing. And when, when we got married 15 years ago, we, we made vows to one another. If you've ever been to a wedding, I'm, you'll have heard something like them. It, it include things like this. You know, all I have is yours. And the other person says, all I have is yours. And from the moment we got married, like, our bank accounts became one bank account. Our time became one time. Our calendar became basically one calendar. But can you imagine for the last 15 years, I'd said to Laura, hey, like, hun, all my stuff is yours. My football boots, they're yours. The broken car in the driveway, which is in many pieces that we're trying to restore, that's yours, right? The games on the games console that you don't like, they're yours. All my time is yours. When I'm watching TV, it's your time. You know, when we're watching Netflix and we're exhausted in the evening, that's your time. When we take the kids to school, that's your time. You know, when we're exhausted and just fast asleep in the middle of the night, that's your time. And if that was it, I think she might have some reason to be just a little upset, because she might have a reason to say, well, Ben, I kind of hoped, I kind of hoped that we would have these special times, these special moments which were just about you and me. I kind of hoped that when it was my birthday, you might have saved up a little bit of money and just spent just a little bit more than going to the gas station at 11 o'clock at night to buy a bar of chocolate. Like, I kind of hoped that you were going to take some time out to plan for this. When it's Valentine's Day, I kind of hoped that there might be some flowers. I kind of hope that once a week we might get a date night together so that we can look each other in the eye and have one proper conversation a week. That would just be absolutely fantastic. And I want to suggest that that's how God feels too, sometimes. It's great that all of it is for his gain. It's great that as a, as a father and as a husband, I go to work and I work really hard, but, but I also know that I have to spend some quality time with my kids and with my wife. And God looks at you and me the same, and he says, I just, I want to have some of your undivided attention. I want to have some of your best. I want to be in that intimate relationship with you. And that's why when God created this people group called the Israelites so many thousands of years ago, he said to them, you're going to need some help to figure this out. And so we're going to create this thing, and it's called tithing. And what it basically is, alongside Sabbath, which is parallel, and that's about time and tithing, and that's about money, what we're going to do is this, is that when you get anything that comes into your life, and they were farmers mostly, so subsistence farming, when you get the crop, I want you to set aside the first portion, the best of it, and I want you to bring it to the temple. And some of it, that's going to get used for building my house, my place, my people, the church, the temple, the kingdom. Some of it is going to go straight to the poor and the lonely and the lost and the least, because that's what I want to see happen of transformation. And some of it, we're just going to burn it. We're literally going to have a burnt offering. It's going to have no practical purpose. It's just going to go up in smoke. We're going to have a wonderful time, but it's going to be about intimacy and worship between you and me. Let's do it. So the Israelites did it. And you see, I think the same invitation, even though we don't live under the law, even though I don't think we can call tithing like, you know, a religious rule, we can absolutely say this is still today in Jesus's plans for our lives because Jesus talks about it so very much. Because when we give of our first, 
we set aside the best, what we're saying is this, I love you. I trust you. I am dependent on you, even though I can't figure it out for myself sometimes. Jim Elliott says, he is no fool. Jim Elliott was a very famous missionary, by the way. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he can't lose. And if you think about it for a minute, just think about what the opposite of giving of our first and our best is. It's to give of our last and our leftovers. I was listening to another very famous speaker, a guy called John Piper, speak. He said that the problem he sees in the community that he pastors is that often what we do is we say, we're just going to give out of anything that's left over in our finances and our time. And he says that the problem is, is that if you take that approach to your generosity, what happens is you give nothing. And the reason you give nothing is because the enemy is absolutely committed to make sure that you give nothing. And it's really easy for him to do something like this. I'm so sorry, but I just broke your transmission on your car. There's nothing left this month. Oh, I'm so sorry, but there's a medical bill that you didn't see coming. There's nothing left this month. Oh, I'm so sorry, but actually this happened and this happened and this happened. If you do that, then what happens is instinctively you end up with nothing left to give away. And I was thinking about that, and I was like, is that really true? Or is that just John Piper saying some things? So I thought about my life. And, you know, Laura and I have so many awesome, like, miraculous stories where we have seemingly had nothing. And we've forced ourselves to give a bit away. And God has gone crazy and exploded generosity in our lives. But I also have a story that I'd much rather not tell you, which is of a time when Laura and I got a big pay rise. And, you know, we were committed to tithe at that point. But just because of the kind of timing of the pay rise we got, instead of thinking, oh, I know this is amazing, like we can, we're gonna give some money away, what I thought was, oh, fantastic. Like we're gonna save this money, we're gonna do these cool things, we're gonna spend it, and oh, there's all this complicated stuff going on, so I don't know, I don't really wanna give all that money to one organization, and I don't wanna do this. So I know, I'll just, oh, forget it, I'll sort out the tithing thing, I'll leave it where it was, I'll do it at the end of the year. Now, this is no word of a lie. We had the worst financial six months of our lives by a mile. Like every t possible bill that could even exist in the world seemed to arrive in and our doors. Every possession we had seemed to break. Everything went wrong. Every time we went on a travel trip, we got lost or late and we had to spend more money. Like the, the world just kind of fell apart around us until after like six months, I was a bit like Jonah. I was like, I, just, I was like, I'm stop. Please stop. I give up. Okay. Okay. I'm so sorry. And now I'm going to reset and do the tithing first, give of the first, and everything else can sort itself out. And I don't think it's just a one-for-one, one and it's, I'm just telling you my story, everything else sorted itself out. God's invitation to us is to be people who receive but give in equal measure. So what do we do then? What is helpful and practical and real that might be useful to us? Well, number one, should we tithe? And I think for all the reasons I've just said, I think actually for, for all Christians who love Jesus, that giving away the first tenth of our income before tax, without strings attached, should always be at least our aspirational goal. 
And for some of us, actually, if we're really honest, we should have got past 10% a very long time ago because we should be way over down the road by now. And I'm talking about myself as well, right? Tithing should always be our goal. Should Christians seek wealth? Absolutely. If it's not about the love of money. Jesus is really clear. Money is not a problem. Loving money is the biggest problem. And so for some of us, and I actually think this might be a prophetic word for some of us, some of us actually have a particular calling on our lives, which is to be the generators of wealth. We have a particular gifting and a particular skill set, particular opportunities that allow us to generate resource. It's just who God made us to be. And actually, God made it to you and to, for a purpose. It wasn't so that you could have lifestyle expansion. It was so you could have kingdom expansion. And that's the call that you have on your life. And I think if that's you, some of you will just know that, that that's the call that God has on your life. John Wesley, um, very famous guy, um, founded the Methodist movement of churches, was born in 1703 in London. And um, by the time, in 1731, he was 28 years old, he, he, he just realized there's this huge attraction of wealth and fame and fortune. And so um, at the age of 28 years old, he realized that a, an average English person at that time could live off 28 pounds a year. That was the magic number for a living wage. And so he committed to hold on to 28 pounds and give everything else he ever received away. So the first year he did that, he made 30 pounds through his ministries and he gave away two. The following year, he made 60 pounds and he gave away 32 pounds. The following year, he made 90 pounds and he gave away 62 pounds. By the peak of his ministry, he was receiving 1,400 pounds a year and living off 28 pounds. If you want to put that into some sort of context, if you take, I don't know, maybe $40,000 salary today, living wage, he was receiving $2 million a year and living off 40000 It was so controversial that the English government decided to investigate him. Because in that time, all the tax that was levied was levied on imported fine jewelry and silver and gold. And so they raided his house to find out where his silver plates were because they were convinced that he must be hiding them somewhere. So they ransacked his house and found absolutely nothing. And there's a letter that's documented that you can find online, and it says this. At present, I have two silver spoons in London and two in Bristol, and I do not plan to buy any more when so many around me are starving for bread. Isn't that amazing? Is there any reason that God might have chosen this guy to form a whole movement and revival to break out? Maybe there is. How is the kingdom built with everything that I have? How does my time, my skills, my iPhone, my clothes, how does the car, how does, how does the TV, how does the bank balance, how does any of it build God's kingdom? That's really what I want you to think about today.